As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hi, everybody. I'm Zale Mednick, and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. Today on the podcast, I'm going to be chatting with Amit Gupta about his unique story on battling and ultimately surviving cancer. Amit is an entrepreneur who founded the company Photo Jojo, which created clever and joyful photography gear, and he launched a worldwide co-working movement known as Jelly. He contributed to a Wall Street Journal bestseller with Malcolm Gladwell and others, and over the last couple of years, he has changed gears and become a sci-fi writer. He survived leukemia and is here to talk about that experience and how it has influenced his life. Amit, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Zale. How's it going? It's going well. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for asking. Sure. Uh, really thrilled to have you here today. So a diagnosis of cancer can be life-altering uh, because in many cases it can be life, it can be life-ending, to be blunt. But what is, it, what is it really like to be diagnosed with cancer and to undergo treatment at such a young age? I think many of us surmise how we would feel, how we would react, and how we might change course if we thought we might die. But it's impossible for anybody to really know how they would react in such a position unless faced with that stark reality. And if we then survived against all the odds, how would it, if at all, change the way we look at the world and progress through our lives? So. I guess that kind of frames our it's conversation. A <laughs> it's a lot of questions, and don't fear. You don't have to answer. You can answer whatever you want. But for now, I'm not even going to ask you any of those. What, what I ask everybody to start is, in this case, what do you think the biggest preconception people have about cancer is? I think one of them is that it's, it's not part of life. It's something that's interrupting life, or it's something that's changing our lives. And I think 
as with death, cancer is just part of life. It's just part of our experience on this planet. And it's got both good and bad parts. In a way, in a way death is the only certain thing we know will happen in life. Yep. Yet. So far. So, so far. <laughs> so far, yet you're right. It's a shock to people when it happens, understandably, especially at a young age. But uh, death is something that people are extremely uncomfortable about. We have an expectation, I think, that it's... It's not a part of life, like you said. Yeah, that's not normal or that it's something to be feared or it's something to be avoided, which obviously it can't be. Um, I started to attend these death cafes a few years ago. It's this movement, I think it was started in the UK, where people get together over like coffee and cake just to talk about death. Um, and it's so weird because it's such a taboo subject when people hear about it, they're like, death cafe, like what the hell is that? Why would I go? And it's actually quite beautiful. People come together from all walks of life, all different ages, all different relationships to death. Some people are dying. Some people are, you know, in their 20s and not not dying at all. Some people, you know, are just curious. And it's not something where people come to mourn. It's just to talk about death in any context. When you go to one of these, it's just so fascinating because the conversations seem so basic. They're like the conversations we should be having when we're like growing up as kids about death, we should be curious about what death is and what it means, but we're not allowed to be curious because we're not supposed to talk about it. I've never heard of a death cafe, and you're right too. Probably the initial reaction when you tell somebody you go to death cafes <laughs> is that's that's it's morbid or it's yeah. morbid, but but I don't think you should need a diagnosis of cancer or need to have a near-death experience ideally to face those questions because ideally you can live your life without having that trauma cause you to think about it and you can just think about it so you're living your life before that of course kind of thing happens. yeah totally i don't wish it on anyone yeah i, I i'm sure i'm sure you don't and <laughs> nor do i this podcast does not endorse cancer <laughs> um before cancer you were a very successful businessman you had some very creative and exciting projects, uh, and then cancer obviously had an effect and changed your course a bit. So let's talk a little bit about what your life was like before before you were diagnosed with leukemia. Sure. Um, so I think I, I feel like I lived a pretty charmed existence before leukemia. I, I had the privilege of working on a lot of projects that were exciting to me with a lot of people that were very inspiring and creative, and I... I actually never had a full-time job. I still haven't had a full-time job. I've had internships and I've like, you know, summer jobs, that kind of thing. But um, I've always been very entrepreneurial. I've always gotten to start my own thing. So directly in the years before the diagnosis, I was running a company called Photo Jojo. It was a bootstrapped startup. I started it with very little money, didn't take outside investment, never intended to sell it. I was living in San Francisco, really just enjoying my life and building this company, building a very unique company actually where... You know, we had uh, 20-odd people, and we'd take everyone on vacations, or workations, we call them. So, like, once a year, we'd uproot the whole company for a month and go to India and just work from India for the month, or Costa Rica, or Thailand, or whatever. So uh, I was really building it in this very unorthodox way that I was able to do. I had the freedom to do because I hadn't taken outside money, and it was my decision, my choice. My, it was all under my control, and I think... When the diagnosis came, it was a pretty pretty big thing that was outside of my control. That's a pretty different type of business model. I guess that's becoming more common, the nomad worker life, mm -hmm. but to have that kind of culture. Uh, yeah, I think at the time we were pretty unique in having half of our team be remote, even though we were not a remote company. 
just being very flexible in terms of vacation time and travel. And a lot of this, again, was selfish. I made this company, I started this company with my own money and I didn't have anyone else to answer to. And I liked to travel. So it made sense that I would basically take everyone else with me because I still wanted to work on the company, but I didn't want to be tied to one place. Um, and I think a lot of the decisions that I made creating the company had to do with just um, realizing the things that I wanted in my life and helping other people have them too. And even before starting that company, you weren't one to necessarily follow convention strictly. You mm-hmm. you didn't finish college, right? I did finish college. I dropped out after my sophomore year to start a company. And uh, I raised some money for that company and ran it for a few years, but eventually did go back and finish college. What was that like dropping out of college? Because that's a, that's a big deal. It's against convention, yeah. and it's, a, it's not a typical decision. Um, it was a great decision. But it was hard to, well, was it hard to make? So it was the go-go 90s and the internet was like popping and everyone seemed like they were just going around raising millions of dollars for their companies. So I feel like I got a lot of support for doing it, which was unusual because my parents are Indian and they really believe in education. And I don't think under other circumstances they would have been thrilled about their son dropping out of college. Um, by the time I got a lot of support and it just, I was so sure that it was the right thing to do. It seemed like a really easy decision. Yeah. And it was a good decision. The company failed. I spent like two years working on that company, literally had bunk beds in the office. I could like not leave the office for a long period of time, had like a gym nearby where I could shower, um, and did nothing except really work and sleep. And it still failed. Um, I mean, it like actually like the dot com bubble burst. All our advertisers went away. Had to lay off half the company and then half the company again. This was before Photo Jojo. Yeah, yeah. This was in two thousand, and I was like nineteen years old and the youngest person in the company. And it, it was definitely like some of the worst before cancer. I'd say the worst moments in my life were having to like lay off all these friends uh, that had built this company with me. But we actually did eventually get it back to profitability, and I was completely burned out by the time we got there. And so I went back to school and it turns out college is great. Like college is so fun. It's so much better than the real world. You just hang out with smart people and there's all these brilliant people whose job it is to just teach you whatever you want to learn. And everyone's got gobs of free time. It's just like paradise. And did you acknowledge at the time how great it was? Yeah. When I came back, I was like, holy moly, like this is amazing. College is so great. And before I hated it. I thought it was just like such a slog. People were always telling you what to do. You had homework. Like I hated it. And man, I wish I'd, I wish everyone took gap years to like go work in the real world or like work for a startup even better to like understand how much better it is to just be able to go to college. Yeah. Everybody always talks about, including myself, oh, college is great. Oh, those were great years. At the time, I don't think I thought so. But maybe having had some distance from it at the time, I would have come back and said, oh, yeah, this is better than real life. So much. I feel so lucky to have had two years where I like understood what a privilege I was experiencing. Yeah. What happened after college then? So after college, I didn't have anything tying me down. I thought I should just do whatever I want. I liked Hawaii, should move to Hawaii, got a book. Title of the book was like, So You Want to Move to Hawaii? It seems like a relevant book if you want yeah, to move to no, Hawaii. Yeah, a very helpful book. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom got breast cancer. She's fine now, but I decided to stay in Connecticut while she was getting treatment. And in the course of doing that, I've been reading uh, Seth Godin's blog. He's like a really influential marketer. And he was looking for a team to help him start this nonprofit. I applied for that and got it and then helped him build the rest interview and grow the rest of the team and then ran this project called Change This for about a year. 
and moved to New York. And then I was just already in New York, so Hawaii was just really far in the rearview mirror. I never got there, sadly. <laughs> no, I, I know you made it there later, so I mean, at least you made times, it there later. Yeah. But but New York was wonderful. New York, I think, was like such a pivotal uh, place for me to be in that point in my career because there's just so much energy and so much ambition. You can't like leave your apartment in New York without running into people just hustling from one place to another and feeling like incredibly motivated to go and make stuff because it's a hard place to live and people don't move there because the lifestyle they move there to get shit done. And then what did you, when did you decide uh, to build your next company? So I was living in New York and I was doing some consulting work. I saw everyone around me just getting digital cameras and taking tons and tons of photos. And I'd been a photo enthusiast for years and had gotten back into it when I moved to New York because New York is incredibly photogenic. And I started getting into like the photo blogging movement that was taking place at the time. All these things were coming together. And I thought there should be something for all these people who are taking more photos now than ever before. And so I started this email newsletter. And it was super simple, called it Photo Jojo. It was all about how to be more creative with your photos, how to do more with your photos after you've taken them. And it grew really quickly just by word of mouth, never did any promotion or advertising. And I decided the way to make money off this was to sell ads. So I started doing that. And it turns out I'm the world's worst ad salesman, just terrible at it. And it's no fun. So I started to sell stuff. I found some products overseas that were like photo display products ways to show off photos in your home and they weren't available in the states so i start to like import them and just sell them like i'd pack them up on my living room table in manhattan and um, take them to the 24-hour post office at like two in the morning and just did that for like a, a few months and it grew really quick that first holiday season we had like five products or something and then i had to move back to my parents house because the dining room table was too small in my apartment to like pack and ship everything and we'd fill up my mom's minivan and take it to the post office every day anyway yeah started started it just as a side project as an email and it became an online store and then it grew and grew and grew very organically what was the what was the scope of the growth just to get an idea of how big it was every year it either doubled or tripled. I think around the time we sold it, we were north of 10 million in revenue a year with very good margins for a retail store. But the cool thing was that we never spent a dime on advertising. We like never ran Facebook ads or Instagram ads or, you know, even podcast ads or whatever. We just did stuff to make our customers excited about what we were doing and excited to tell people about us. And we were very unconventional of that too. So like if we messed up your order, that was the greatest opportunity to like make a customer for life, right? So you could you could send that customer a singing telegram to apologize, or you could call their mom and apologize if the gift was for their mom. We did stuff like that all the time. We we really had fun with it. I think that was one of the things that we tried to make sure to do with this business, like always try to make it fun because why do it if it's not fun? I've never heard somebody describe making a mistake with a customer in such a positive way and you're (laughs) you're right it is such an opportunity if you approach it like that yeah no this i think our first mother's day we were selling these like customized photo bags for mother's day and all these people bought them and then towards like the one week before mother's day i think we found out that somehow the orders hadn't gotten to the vendor who was printing them like or a bunch of the or like 10 percent of the order so like hundreds of bags 
And we were like, oh man, and there's no way to fix this before mothers. There's no way to get the bags to the moms. So I like individually contacted each customer who had ordered and wasn't going to get the bag in time and was like, here's my number. I'm happy to call your mom and talk to her right now and apologize on your behalf. And like, we basically like bent over backwards to make this right. We couldn't fix it, but hopefully like make things right. Many of those people were customers for life. And many of the people that we mess up orders for, we don't do it often, but when we do, when we did, those became our most loyal customers because they got to see who we really were. So you're running this successful business. Uh, I mean, by all by all measures, you, you you've done a really great job in your life of accomplishing goals and doing yeah. some amazing things. So then you're you're diagnosed with leukemia. Yeah. So tell me about tell me about that. So I, you know, was just feeling kind of sick for a couple of weeks, which is a long time, and feeling kind of weak, and I went in to get a blood test, um, and I got a call. A couple days later from my primary care doctor telling me that I had leukemia and it was acute myeloid leukemia. It was pretty advanced and rapid in um, its progression. So he, he, he was basically surprised I was walking around at all. He didn't understand how that was even possible. And he felt like I had to start treatment immediately. And if I didn't, I was basically just going to die in a week or two. And that was, yeah, I mean, it was a shock. Like, how do you, how do you respond to that? Aside from just taking action immediately, like, okay, I'm just packing a overnight bag and going to the hospital right now and getting transfusions. I talked to my dad, who's a doctor, and we decided I'd take the first flight the next morning to, um, to the East Coast and start treatment at Yale. My life very quickly changed. It wasn't like, how am I going to, you know, optimize this campaign or what new products are coming out this week and, you know, how do we do something creative around the holidays this year. It was, it was which hospital am I going to choose? And like, how do we start treatment and what's the next step and what's the prognosis and literally left without telling my roommates goodbye, without telling my employees goodbye, without telling any friends, just like had to get on the next flight and go. It was a very radical life change. So I can't imagine what goes through your mind in such, in such a moment when you get that kind of call. It's, it's, you can't prepare for that kind of thing. I don't think you really think about it until you have, like I didn't think about it until I got to the hospital and treatment had started. And then I was just sitting there having chemo pumped in because in the moment when you get that call, you just have to do, you just have to like take action. But when you're sitting in the hospital and chemo and you just have time, then you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're feeling really shitty about your situation and you're crying and then slowly you're getting to a point where you can you can figure out what to do about it. So you started getting chemotherapy. Yeah. Uh, what kind of things, when you had all that time to think, were you thinking? Was it was it stages of grief? Yeah, it's totally stages of grief. I don't even know what they are, but I'm not, I'm sure I went through them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the stages of grief are either. So I'm glad glad you don't. But <laughs> were there any unexpected feelings that you had? I didn't have time to expect anything, so I don't. I'd say no. I feel like. Things were just happening too rapidly for me to have expectations of what this process would look like, or and I don't think I ever imagined. Oh, if I got cancer, like, what, what, how would I react to that? Oh, I'd be stoic and composed. Like, no, I, I just it never even occurred to me that that was a possibility. So I went through grief. I felt sorry for myself. I felt angry at the world. I felt angry at myself for wasting whatever time I had before I got cancer. I, you know, I 
slowly came to terms with it and then I decided to or I started to figure out what to do about my situation did you really truly feel and looking back do you feel like you wasted your time before that in now in retrospect no but in that moment of course yeah because I they had told me that I needed a stem cell donor and I didn't have a match in the stem cell registry which meant that my odds of surviving post five years after this diagnosis were about 25% without the stem cell without the transplant. Yeah. And so I was, it's about like, well, this is it. This is, it's over. And here I was, you know, I had been successful. Sure. I had like money saved up from this company. I had done all these things, but I'd also put off so much because I was building this company and doing these things. And it didn't matter that I had money in my bank account and freedom to do the things I wanted. If I was in this hospital room, in this prison for the rest of my short life. And that felt like a waste. It's tough because then you say, in retrospect, though, maybe you don't look at it like that. Of course not. Now I, now I have some unknown number of years, and I'm glad that I worked hard and saved up and can use that money and use those connections and use those resources and use that experience in the future. But at the time, it seemed like, well, I only have like one to three years, like... And it's all going to be in this hospital. <laughs> so I shouldn't have spent all that time working hard and trying to make money and trying to make this successful company. I should have just had fun and done all those things. How do you undergo chemo, which is extremely uncomfortable, knowing that the chances they're giving you are so slight? How do you balance being, I'm going to beat this, I'm going to be optimistic, I'm going to take the chemo and it's going to suck, yeah. but I'm going to do this while also... Obviously, at the back of your mind, you're thinking, and I'm doing all this chemo, and they're saying, if yeah. I don't get the stem cell transplant, there's a 25% chance. Yeah. And I believe even if, you, even if you do get the stem cell transplant, yeah. which we won't keep the suspense, you got it, yeah. it's still not a guarantee. Yeah, then it's approximately 50-50. Well, I guess there's two answers. One is that you have optimistic moments and pessimistic moments. So in the optimistic moments, you feel like, well, 25% is still pretty good. Like, you might make it. You should try also, the medical system doesn't really give you a choice. Like, I never felt like I was presented options. Like, you could take chemo or you could go to palliative care and just you could wither away and die. Um, no one no one said, like, here's here's the menu of, of options. Please choose one. It was just now you have to start chemo and now this is your life. So in that sense, it was easy. You just do it because it's being done to you. You're just this object that is poked and prodded and into whom poison is pumped regardless of your will so did your perspective on mortality and on death start to change during this or was it were you too involved in the actual process to acknowledge that i think my perspective on time changed like i think i became incredibly keenly aware of how much time i had wasted in my life you know whether that wasting is like a moment spent on facebook or twitter which i still do now um, or, or if it's actually, you know, wasting watching some bad movie or I don't know, whatever it is. I just, I just realized that I had so much time up till then and now it was all gone maybe. And I hated myself for it. Like I just was super angry at myself for it. I wasn't angry at like the cancer cause that's random. Like no, that's not a being. I can't be angry at it, but I can be angry at myself. And I think I still, I carried that for a while. I carried that like preciousness of time for a while and I still feel it it's not as visceral as it was then back then it was like impossible to not face it and now I feel like I can get away with wasting an evening watching a Leonardo DiCaprio movie 
Hey, it's okay. let's, there's absolutely, and, <laughs> and I know you're being facetious because you're a Leo fan like I am, but I think that maybe a top three way to spend a night. I do watch movie. a lot less TV and watch Netflix pretty rarely. Like, but yeah, I think I'm, I'm much more aware of where my time is going and that's feels like a permanent change. How did other people's reactions at the time of your cancer affect you? Because I think a lot of people and a lot of people definitely includes myself when somebody has it wasn't a terminal diagnosis in your case, but a bad diagnosis like mm-hmm. that with a poor prognosis. Sometimes I might tend to give that sad face, like a, a pitying look. Yeah. Um, I'm awkward. I don't know exactly what to say. Lately, what I've tried doing the past few years, I guess, not that I've had too many encounters in this, is just being real and saying, oh, this really sucks. Yeah. But how did people react to you and how did you like for people to react to you? People were great. Honestly, like people reached out and said whatever they said. I don't remember anyone being awkward. I'm sure they felt awkward because it's a hard situation to be in for other people. But I think anyone that reached out, I was, it really warmed my heart to hear from them. And anyone that like visited or sent stuff, it was just wonderful. Whatever it was, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I feel like there's a lot of advice out there for how to, how to be there for a cancer patient, uh, which is probably all good and worth following. But in my case, I just, it was nice to know that people cared and that was enough and it didn't matter what they said. Did some people reach out that were surprising that you hadn't spoken to in a long time? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I heard from like people that, you know, I heard like from a girl that like had a crush on me for a long time and never told me like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, um, which is interesting definitely it made me think about you know what what should i be saying like or should i be writing my final words or letters to people now so that if at some point i'm not able to send them and things are dire they can they can know these things did you have any of those emotions i mean i'm sure you had emotional conversations oh, but did sure. it get to yeah, the yeah. point like did you sit down with your parents and yeah i mean express i expressed all that yeah i made my will and you know i talked about what i wanted to happen to the company and yeah of course i had to so then tell me about the stem cell transplant. So it was not easy to find a donor as it often right. is not. Mm-hmm. What, what happened? So, uh, yeah, my doctors had searched the registries in the States and Germany, maybe elsewhere, and there was no match. And the odds of any one person being a match are like one in, I don't forget what it is, one in 20,000 or 50,000, something like that, not very likely. And so... Many of my friends had banded together to start holding stem cell drives where you can go and just swab your cheek with like a Q-tip and send that in to be sampled. Um, but the doctors were very clear, like, don't don't hinge your hopes on this. It's not going to work. It's not going to find you a donor. It, it's a good thing to do because it helps other people, but it will not find you a donor because the timeline's very short. I had like a few months before I'd have to have, to have the transplant and it would just be very unlikely that we'd get like tens of thousands of people swabbing. But my friends are amazing. I mean, like I, I had friends first in New York and San Francisco and then all around the country and then all around the globe hold these drives, hundreds of drives, uh, get press from all over the place like NPR, CNN, uh, get movie stars to like do public service announcements. I had people that do like marketing for major airlines, like working on this. And um, my hospital room basically became like a campaign headquarters where like we'd have charts up on the walls my assistant would be coordinating all these different people i had five friends who'd like taken either time off work or half time off work and would be calling in to the conference call like every couple days to like sync up their efforts and amazingly we found two donors not just one two match two perfect matches 
and along the way, like dozens of matches for other people, which is also awesome. Because you're increasing the registry, obviously. Yeah, and those continue to come in. I keep hearing from people who went to registries for me who hear that they're not matches for somebody else and are going to do the donation. So like that part is amazing that we've like saved dozens of people's lives uh, because all these friends came together to try to save mine. I mean, it's such a heartwarming story to hear that. Yeah. It's, it, it speaks to the power of friendship, the power of love. Totally. And it, it's cheesy, but it's, it's true. Yeah. Uh, and to have... And the power of the internet, Zale. And the power of the internet. Sorry. Because <laughs> all you're this the spread on like, Twitter just... and Facebook and Tumblr, like uh, none of this would have happened. I mean, for all the evils that those tools do to our world and to our like attention and time and whatever, like... They also do a ton of good, and I think it's interesting. It's it's valuable to note that. Like, I definitely would not be alive if it weren't for Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. It's yeah. true. I mean, that's a pretty good advertising. I mean, you said you're not great with ads, but that that's a good. <laughs> not great selling them. So, so you get the stem cell transplant, and what's the course after that? So the course after the stem cell transplant, prior to that, you get kind of like the largest dose of chemo that they can give a person without killing them. And then so directly after the transplant, you feel fine. And then a week later, you feel terrible because your body's just decom- like your body's falling apart. Your cells are dying from the mucus and your like throat tissues like sloughing off and all. it's disgusting. And then there's like a year of recovery, at least there's a hundred days of isolation where you can't go out in public. You can't you can't be around crowds, you can't eat food that isn't cooked, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the next year is basically just about getting back to your state of quote unquote new normal and slowly being able to like walk down a hallway and then slowly be able to like go upstairs and like eventually get to the point where you can work and function in society again. And were you living with your parents at this point when you left the hospital? Yeah, for the first hundred days, uh, they took me in, which is really nice of them. And I had a nice semi like hospital like existence living at home for those hundred days and then once things started to normalize if you can call it that what did it feel like at that point because you're living in calling it a high is the wrong term for sure but you're living in a completely different sector of reality in terms of your concerns and in terms of your day-to-day and then once that is kind of done even though you still got your concerns about prognosis what does that feel like? Life life felt wide open. I mean, I had been in that hospital for so many months, and it had plenty of time to dream about all the things that I would do if I could ever leave those, you know, leave that room. And I made lists, and now I had the opportunity to start trying to do those things. Like, I couldn't do a lot of them yet, but I could start. Um, I could travel, start to travel. I could get a dog, so I got a dog for the first time. Um, you were in a commercial with the dog, correct? Years later, I was in a car commercial with a do- my dog. And yeah, no, it was amazing. I think it was a really, really, really optimistic period of th- period of life. It was a very difficult period of life because I still had a lot of graft versus host uh, symptoms. Basically, my new immune system was fighting my body because its DNA was different than the DNA of my tissues. So I saw like my organs as foreign bodies and was trying to attack them. And that's normal. Um, so there's like a lot of health stuff going on in that first year, but I was out and I could like do stuff and that was amazing. That was so great. Like I could live life again. I had hope. Were you in a bit of shock that you hadn't died, that you had gotten the transplant that you were? I don't know. I don't don't know. I feel like generally I'm a really optimistic person and certainly there were lapses in that during this, this ordeal, but no, I didn't feel like it was, it's, it felt like what was supposed to happen was happening. 
So what did you decide to do in terms of your company and in terms of the direction of your life and how much of that was influenced, I guess, by what All of it. happened? Yeah. I, <laughs> as I said that, I'm like, what a stupid question. <laughs> well, I mean, cancer is the best thing and the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but more so the best thing, right? And I think a lot of people who go through it that I've talked to say the same thing. And people who are around them, like their caregivers, hate to hear it because it's so terrible. Like I have a video that my then girlfriend recorded when I was in the hospital undergoing chemo and I wanted her to tape it for me. And in this video, I'm looking at the camera and I'm saying, look, if the leukemia comes back, I can go through this again, but don't do it. Just die. Don't go through this again. Like it was that painful that I was, I wanted to have on video recording telling myself not to go through this treatment again. I mean, you touched on how bad it was, but we're kind of glossing over how bad it is. Yeah, I mean, in, I had in retrospect, those... <laughs> it's it's oh, he had cancer, he had to deal with the treatment, but that doesn't. Do no, justice. it was I wanted to die. Like I like I was going through it, but I was like, I'll never do this again, even if it means I will be alive. Like I will, it's just not worth it. And of course, now I have enough distance to like joke about it and say like, of course, I'd go through that treatment again. Like yes, a hundred percent. But at that time, when I actually knew what it consisted of, no, I wasn't. I wasn't willing to do it again. So cancer is terrible. On the other hand. It's also wonderful, and it has resulted in so many positive changes in my life and so many relationships that have, wouldn't have formed otherwise and so many epiphanies and so many changes of you know perspective that I would not have had. Um, I can't imagine my life without having gone through it. So how did you decide to change course then? After the transplant, I had approximately 50-50 odds of making it through five years. So I decided I would never forgive myself if I ended up back in the hospital room and hadn't done all those things that I wanted to do when I was stuck in there. So the obvious answer or the obvious next step was to go do those things. And to do those things, I had to not be running this company because, remember, I was still running it when I was in the hospital. I was still taking conference calls and doing emails. I was like half campaigning for the donor drives and half running my company. Yeah, it was stupid. Uh, but it was, I had no choice uh, because I was, I was, it was my company and there's no one else to run it. Luckily I had amazing employees who picked up the slack and, and did do most of the work, but I still had to like kind of be there. Anyway, I couldn't keep doing that after the transplant. I had to actually work and the company needed me. So I decided to spend the next year and a half packaging up the company for sale, finding a buyer uh, which itself was an incredibly difficult process because I, I like by early in the afternoon, I could barely like still sit at the, at a desk. I had to, I just didn't have the energy for it. And I'm naturally an introvert. So like making 20 phone calls a day to like other entrepreneurs and potential investors and potential acquirers, uh, day in and day out is not, is not something that feeds me. It's something that drains me, but that's what it took to sell the company and find it a good home. Um, so I eventually did sell the company and uh, everyone kept their job uh, or got promotions and I was able to leave six months after the sale happened. And then I spent uh, some time just doing those things, traveling the world, trying a lot of different things that I wanted to try. And then I guess most recently over the past few years, you've gotten into sci-fi writing. I think I decided after some travel that I was excited to make things again. And I thought a lot about what that should be, what I should make. And there are a lot of startup ideas I had. I still love technology. But it also seemed like kind of a waste to go back into it because like when my mom, like when I um, left college the second time, 
I had this opportunity to go out and like move to Hawaii or do whatever I wanted. It wasn't going to impact my career. Again, here I wasn't like in the midst of a startup. I painfully extricated myself from that life by selling the company and I had the opportunity to live a different life. And so I figured I should take it. And so I tried a lot of different things. I tried, like I learned how to paint. I learned how to draw. I, you know, just, just explored every like whim and fancy and writing was something that I was always kind of romantically interested in as a kid and nothing that I, as an adult, had really pursued, but this was my opportunity to try it. So that's what I've been doing for the last year and a half or so, um, writing science fiction short stories, slowly getting better at it, um, starting to submit to magazines. And I've read fiction that has changed my life and changed my perspective dramatically. And it would be amazing for me to do that for other people. So that's my goal. And this probably wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had your cancer. Oh, no. I, unless, you know, maybe when I was like 60 or 70 or something, retired. Yeah. So this show's called Preconceived. Oh. I was going to say, in case you didn't know, which would okay, mean cool. I've done a terrible a advertising name. job. Thanks. Great name. Uh, I really like it. <laughs> so the reason I say that is because Life Preconceived, we named this episode Life Reconceived, mm-hmm. but... On a grand on a grand scheme, clearly this has influenced your perspective and changed your life. Are there things that you look at, though, the way people live or the way you live, where on a daily basis there's just preconceptions that you notice that you had that some people do have indoctrinated into them that you see while they're living their lives and how you were living your life that you just look at now with a completely different point of view? For sure. Probably too many to enumerate, but I think the one that always sticks with me is time the the value of time and i think that's something that people also get later in life especially you know you hear a lot about people after they retire or on their deathbed talking about how they wish they spent their time and how much that they spent at work instead of with family or with friends or loved ones but i see it now so clearly in myself and in others like we just we just waste gobs of time both doing things that we don't want to be doing uh and trying to live lives that other people want us to live and it's terrible and it's sad and it's hard not to do to be honest like even for me I know that I'm doing it when I do it but I think we spend a lot of our time trying to please other people and to live up to other people's expectations and I wish we didn't I don't know do you have any advice to somebody who's living their life and thinking about these things but it's tough to make that change it's tough to I mean it there are limitations to being able to forget the aspect of financial needs yeah. um, and combining that with following your passions and doing what you love to do and saying, you know what, screw it. Like, sure. I don't like this. I want to live my life a different way, but reconciling that with reality sometimes. Yeah. Well, I don't think it has to be that big, first of all. Like, I think, sure, I, I did that, but I don't think that I think people can change their life for the better in many small ways that they're not doing. And I, I, Seth uh, Godin gave me a piece of advice in marketing once years ago that I feel like applies here. Um, and I'm, I'm going to butcher what he said, but basically it's that people don't care about you. And in marketing or advertising or whatever else, they care about what you can do for them, but they don't care about you or your story. They just care about themselves. And in this context, I think what's important to know is that people don't care about you. Like we, we spend so much time worrying about 
Like, what if I quit this job and people wonder what that means? Like, will they think I'm stupid for doing it? Or what if I, you know, go do this little, like I go, or I order the same thing this other person ordered. I want the same thing on the menu at this restaurant that they ordered, but maybe they'll think I'm silly for ordering the same thing. And that, so I won't order it. Like there's just like a, a million things a day that we do because we think that someone else will care, but they don't care. And I think if we can internalize that, even in small ways, even in tiny ways each day, it gets us closer to freedom and it gets us closer to living the life that we want to live. Do you still struggle with how to find that balance? Because you yeah, kind not of with lived... the, not with the menu thing, though. I'll not with the menu. The same thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have I have the same meal every single day. But uh, do you do you struggle reconciling? Because you've lived a bit of a nomadic life the last little bit, if that's fair to say it's fair to say it's fair to say you've lived a bit of a nomadic life uh moving around traveling a lot writing while you're traveling do you struggle with that but also saying maybe i don't want to be a nomad because there's parts of life where stability structure is a good part of life totally yeah i think it's just all about listening to yourself like it's there's a lot of influences that are part of society and other people that are telling you what to do. And there's, uh, there's a very quiet voice inside of yourself that's telling you what to do. And the more you can listen to that quiet voice inside of yourself, the better off you are. So that quiet voice was telling me to travel and explore. And honestly, right now it's telling me to slow down and to be more stable and to get more done in the writing. And so that's the voice I'm listening to right now. I don't want to go too far in the opposite direction of where I'm going right now, but I definitely am um, aiming towards slowing down and finding a home base so I can make better progress in the writing. And on that note, I maybe I'm misinterpreting, but I, I think in regards to business, you were an entrepreneur and you had led a busy life. I don't think you're telling entrepreneurs, get out of that because it's a hectic lifestyle. No, just do what you love. What I hear you saying is do what you love. And you probably did love a lot of what you were doing at the time. But then you heard that quiet voice saying, okay, maybe I loved that at the time. But now I want to do other stuff. And maybe there's people who are doing business. And you're not saying you're wasting your time doing business. You're saying, yeah, if that's what your quiet voice is telling you or your loud voice or whatever, then you follow that. Totally. Yeah. And don't care what other people think because they don't even care. That is... I mean, that's the toughest thing, not caring what people think. Yeah. And I care what people think. I I, I try not to. And I try to live my life the way you're... you're Trying to. You're trying to. And uh, I think I try to do a better job about it. This podcast has helped me try to understand how to live my life better. It seems like you're living a pretty unique life right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can't complain. I've been... uh, I've I've had a... I've I've got a good life. Yeah. Um, And uh, part of that's luck. And part of that's because I've made some changes. More Mm -hmm. of it's probably luck. But... Amit, do you have any other thoughts that you want to impart to our listeners? Oh, man, like final words. Gosh. The only thing that comes to mind is I feel like I wish that I pursued more unusual experiences, unusual, like pushing my boundaries experiences. So like whether that's like taking ayahuasca or going on a meditation retreat or even just like doing a cold plunge just jolting yourself out of your day-to-day is such a valuable thing to be doing on a regular basis. And I think we all should be doing that. Amit, I want to thank you so, so much. You, uh, you're an amazing and inspiring person. Your story is incredible, but beyond the story, it's the way, I mean, what makes the story incredible is the way you've handled it, the insights you've imparted. Thanks Uh, for having me. This is great, Dr. Zale. (laughs) Dr. Zale. Uh, where can people, uh, 
follow you on social media if you still we, we talk yeah about social uh media. i'm super amit on all of like instagram and twitter so s-u-p-e-r-a-m-i-t thank you for listening to another episode of preconceived please subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or google podcasts to automatically get uploads of new episodes we hope you'll join us next time As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.